Hello, John. Hello, Scott. Hi, John. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, way better than medieval Russian peasants, that's for sure. Oh, I, I, I mean, I'm sure we're not talking about medieval peasantry today, but let's say we were. Yeah, we're definitely doing better. I mean, we could argue that pretty much medieval peasantry was not a pleasant time for the peasants, but probably not even for the bourgeoisie, you know, the, the further we go back in time, life is way more and more fragile, even though life still is incredibly fragile, especially as we start looking at uh, a success of a society is when the birth rate and the death rate is about equal and things are starting to take a change in America. But that is besides the point. Or is it the point? What is the point? The point is, John, do you like movies? I love movies, Scott. That's what I like about you. You're a passionate person, even though it's hard to tell from your tone. But that's okay. That's okay, because I, I... I love movies, Scott. Yo, I'm going to have nightmares, bro. Um... <laughs> You're you're a silly boy. Uh, do you like understanding an intersection where film, politics, and God meet? It's what I'm here for. Exactly. This is what I'm here for. Um, yeah. So this is popcorn eschaton. We are a side story of zebras in America. Zebras in America ain't ever leaving, but life happens, and we are. We're working on some things in, you know, in the background, but not like, you know what? I'm not going to say what I was about to say. So this is a very exciting episode for me because this is, this is the first, and I do not believe it'll be the last episode where we unpack a film of probably for me, the GOAT director, the greatest of all time. Oh, wow. And that probably, I don't know, we could talk. I haven't actually thought about it, but I'm like, I don't, I don't have a problem with this statement. And that would be, um, <laughs> why am I drawing a blank? Uh, Andre Tarkovsky, uh, the Russian director. Well, I don't know that he's my goat. I will say that the film Stalker is my favorite film of all time and I don't have a close second I, I would I would say that maybe being there is is my second favorite movie or I I don't know Rumblefish but those movies move me in different ways when I saw Stalker in my mid-30s in a, in a in a movie theater it changed my life it changed how i understood cinema and i had seen solaris but i had and and i'm all, like if you know the podcast zebras in america and marcus pin marcus pin and i also like steven soderbergh's solaris in fact we would venture to say that we more than like steven soderbergh's solaris i think Steven Soderbergh's Solaris understands the book a little bit better, but I'm not going to go so crazy as to say that it's better than Tarkovsky's Solaris, which is all to say that Andrei Tarkovsky is considered by most uh, familiar with his work to be one of the greatest directors of all time, if not the greatest of all, director of all time. I don't know too much about what modern filmmakers think about him, but I'd say most people, if you're making a movie up until the, the directors of the 90s, you're talking about Andrei Tarkovsky. Yeah, you know, um, before starting this little podcast or epic podcast adventure with you, Scott, I think um, Tarkovsky was largely a blank space for me um 
Uh, the only film I had seen before this of his was Ivan's Childhood, which is his first. But, you know, his work always seemed fascinating to me, and especially the subject matter of Andrei Ubliev seemed just so targeted um, at my areas of interest. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast. Um, so I was really looking forward to just taking the deep dive into this film with you. So, um, and wait, you ab- you just ab- saw the movie for this podcast? Uh, um, I I bought the Blu-ray sort of as a blind buy for a Criterion flash sale, and um, and I was sort of saving it for a special occasion. So th- this podcast was that special occasion. Can I just pause to say that it's kind of amazing how Criterion Blu-ray sales on Barnes and Nobles are kind of like keeping like cinema nerds ha- alive. Yeah, uh, th- this like if you have any interest in like Russian cinema or or like this period in history. Um, or Tarkovsky at all like the criterion release of this movie is like absolutely everything you would want in, in a blu-ray set like the all the special features are like worth your time and fascinating like a combination of new stuff and and period stuff from the 60s and like you know a great like scene specific commentary and it has both the theatrical release and the passion of of Andre which is about a half hour longer um so like I I do, I know, Criterion is expensive, and space is at a premium in everybody's lives. But I highly recommend the, that that Blu-ray. Well, well, this is what I'll say, because um, also, they still have regular DVDs if you don't have a Blu-ray player. Criterion is a luxury product. Yeah. There's no question about that, and. They've been doing that since the Laserdisc. And they they are by no means the only luxury DVD in the business. Mm-hmm. You know, Janice does really good stuff. Milestone does really good stuff. There's, there's wonderful companies. And A24 is trying real hard to, to be the next criterion. But the thing is, I think they're trying too hard. So I don't think it's going to quite land. I think, you know... But this movie, which is also the movie... Oh, by the way, we're talking about Andre Rublev. It is on the Criterion channel, but it's also on YouTube. And the YouTube version is not bad. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't set the standard of the, the new Blu-ray, but it, it's, I've, I've had to just, you know, be okay with certain movies when I could just only find the YouTube version, a movie which I have championed for a very long time, Wanda by Barbara Loden before it finally has gotten some of the love that it rightfully deserves. You could really only find a very bad version on YouTube. So the version on YouTube of Andre Rublev is pretty good. However, I know that I am meandering. But this movie meanders, and sometimes good movies meander. I I would recommend, if you are interested in collecting media, and I think there's a lot of good reasons to start collecting media, which I think when we talk about the reason why there's other versions of this movie, I will try to go into. Just get put a Google reminder for Criterion Sale. Criterion has sales all the time, especially at Barnes and Nobles, yeah. where you can get fifty percent off, sixty percent off, two for one, one for one for two, whatever. And you can start yourself a little collection. And Tarkovsky movies, they're worth it. They're worth it. I. Especially if you have a big TV. Because, I mean, in a perfect world, these movies should be seen in movie theaters. But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a dying, broken world. 
and most people don't have access to art house cinemas doing revivals of Andre Tarkovsky all the time. So you have to make do it with what you have. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. This is this is this is this is a long intro, even for our standards. But Andre Tarkovsky is one of the greatest directors who ever lived. Your favorite director, likely either considers Andrei Tarkovsky one of their favorites or one of their um, inspirations. I will say that some people call his films homework. I think those people are dumb. I'm just kidding. I don't think anyone's dumb. I just, I don't find his films to be homework. There is a director who is considered of equal importance for whom their films sometimes seem like homework. But that's for another day. And it is not Akira Kurosawa, by the way. It's not. Akira Kurosawa's worst movie is still a pretty good movie. Yeah. Yeah, there's another, like, top five director of all time, sort of, like, unimpeachable category. Like, that's Seven Samurai is the quickest three and a half hours you'll ever spend watching a movie. Off the top of my head, the Blad, the Bad Sleepwell is my least favorite Kurosawa movie. Okay. And granted, that's just off the top of my head. So that might not be true. And that's still like a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Andre Rublev is a... Well, before I give my little spiel, tell me about Tarkovsky and tell me about Andre Rublev. Uh, well, Tarkovsky was, you know, from what I've learned, was something of, like, a cultural anomaly in the Soviet Union. Like, he was this dashing, um, charismatic, like, well-dressed and and stylish director making these, you know, controversial art house movies when the Soviet Union wanted a very specific... A message from their cultural output, and certainly this movie was not uh, received well by uh, Soviet authorities, and it went through a very long and protracted release life. Um, you know, it was completed like in '66, but not available in America until the early '70s. And you know, and, and Tarkovsky, um, he, he ended up dying fairly early um, after making only about a dozen movies. Um, but this, this is just, you know, one of the most ambitious second films of any director that I could think of. Oh, yeah. And it focuses on the titular Andrei Rublev. This and Southland Tales. <laughs> That's a double feature. Nah. Damn. Um Andrei Rublev was a real uh, Russian monk who who painted religious icons, but very little is known of his actual life. So, almost all of the plot of the film is is, is invented, and um, even most of the icons that have been attributed to him, we really don't know. Because so much of art at the time, especially in Russia, was done by schools or a committee. So you see Andrei Rublev with his like groups of partner monks or apprentices, and they would all work on these icons together. And a lot of medieval art throughout Europe was done in that way, but Russia was just a little behind. And the movie just focuses on Rublev's journey throughout uh, medieval Russia avoiding getting murdered by invading Tartars, um, the ins and outs of cruel nobles who might insist on him painting certain things that he doesn't want to paint. Uh, at what at one point, he takes a vow of silence out of guilt for k- killing a Tartar and gives up painting. And there's all sorts of, like, dream sequences and hallucinations that go in and out of, of reality. Um, just striking imagery everywhere and it's split up into chapters which are not necessarily in chronological order which are each microcosms of the themes of artistic creation that are addressed in the film as a whole 
and they're each incredibly dynamic and watchable and fascinating in, in their own way, and they each feature sort of a new protagonist that we see through uh, Rubliev's eyes. And it's also, in a way, like a Russian history. Mm-hmm. It To me, it's as much a historical piece as it is a biopic. I think it turns the biopic over on its head and says that is is truth important? The answer is I don't know when it comes to art. And what how how do I tell the story of art and Russia and medieval times and religion and politics and violence in three hours? And yeah. the sorry. film, the film critic uh, Dmitry Solinsky, he said, "This is from the Blu-ray." Um, Historical periods in which people live, die, and suffer are redeemed only by their poets and artists. We know history through artists, and and I think that definitely speaks to what this film is, you know, saying. There is only like. There aren't many movies that are very similar to this, and the only one that I find to be slightly close is Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory. Have you ever seen it? I have not, but I do love Hal Ashby. So Hal Ashby is, you know, if you were listening earlier when I mentioned that Being There is probably my second favorite movie, Hal Ashby is probably my favorite American director and for a very long time was my favorite director. I don't know who my favorite director is anymore. Mm-hmm. But Hal Ashby was once, but I don't think he is anymore. And also there's there's like favorite active directors, favorite directors of all time, like yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. You know, but... Hal Ashby made a biopic about Woody Guthrie called Bound for Glory, which basically is a folktale that has very little truth about it. It's just really about telling a story about a time. And for me, what Andre Rublev does is that it tells a story of a time. And it tells a story of a mood. It tells a story of emotion, pain, um, definitely metaphor. Like, like, obviously, like, duh, duh. (laughs) This, duh, this movie has metaphor. For some reason, I'm drawing a blank. What was the, the film that we did an episode about, um, Russian horror film, uh, V. Monks. V, yeah. Do you feel like any sort of connection to those in as uh, or is it just kind of Russian? Um no, I, I do because I think um what this film is what both of those films are getting at uh is that the um the the axiom of Russian history um the soul of the Russian people has been carried through the Orthodox Church. It's the one institution that survived um, the uh, the collapse of the Kievan Rus states, uh, the conquest of the Mongols, and the rule of the Tartars and the Golden Horde and through the Tsars and remains to this day. And that that's why the Soviets glommed on to Rublev as like a cultural figure is because oh this is somebody that we can like get our hooks into and anchor ourselves you know for the past millennia through all the unimaginable horrors that the Russian people ha- have suffered throughout history like this is someone who celebrated faith and hope you know, in the 15th century, and we can look at that and make a connection to it. 
and V sort of flips it on its head and turns those th that orthodox iconography into sort of vestiges of horror. Mm. But it, it's still something that Russian people in the 20th and 21st century can recognize the same way that people in the 15th century could. And, and that long arc of history and long memory is something that I think makes so much of Russian art, you know, from, from icon painting to film so fascinating. Right. And if you even look at Andrei Rublev's art, whether it was drawn by man or committee, um, it's modern for its time. Use of color and shape. But again, what Tarkovsky suggests and shows is like, does it even matter? I'm, I'm pulling this story out of my thin hat and telling a story about religion and revolution during a time where that might not go over so well. Which is, which again, which is something I think we absolutely need to talk about but yeah um how do you how do you feel art is portrayed in this movie um i think these characters are really wrestling with art i mean you know tarkovsky no uh rubliev uh, tarkovsky is definitely projecting himself into rubliev but rubliev even gives up painting because he feels it's a waste um, because at one point, uh, these Tartar invaders, uh, who have aligned themselves with a, a jealous noble, um, take over the, the city of Vladimir, and with that, they burn down the church, and the, with the church goes up uh, Rubliev's icons, the, these things that he's worked his whole life painting. And so he's sort of like... Well, what's the point if my work is just going to be destroyed? Why even bother? If it's just going to be part of this conflagration of sin by, you know, invading pagans, why should I even bother? And, you know, he, he sort of sees visions of his um, former mentor who says, well, plenty of my icons have been burned. And I kept painting because that's what I do. And eventually he comes to see sort of the, the revol that art can be a revolutionary act and decides to dedicate his later life to doing that. And, you know, I think there's just some absolutely incendiary sequences in the bell forging section of this film. Oh, that yes. Are just absolutely jaw dropping. And, you know, if there's any testament to the power of art and what it can do to a person when they're making it, it's in this film and in that sequence. And there's this, it goes from, you know, this sort of primordial pyre when the bell maker, a young boy named Borishka, mm -hmm. is forging this giant silver bell and the weight of that causes him to collapse in Rubliev's arms in what seems to be a reference to, to the Pieta image, and he's, he's just weeping in this monk's arms, and Rubliev says, we're, we're gonna go, and, and we're gonna make art. We're gonna go to the Trinity Chapel. I'm gonna paint, and you're gonna make bells, and we're gonna make beautiful things, and it's just such a moving image to have these these two men embracing in the mud and in their utter exhaustion and despair, and they're like, well, th from this point on, we're going to dedicate our lives to making beautiful things. I mean, despair is a very powerful thing, and also there's... Have you ever read this theory as to why cave art throughout the world is very similar? I have not. So there's this theory that um, when you are tired and hungry and have not a lot of access to oxygen, mm. 
there's a similar sort of hallucination that people get and the, and that may the hallucinations and the feeling from those hallucinations may throw a part into cave painting and de delusion and there there's this there's always this question is is our people receiving the word or are they having a delusion or is it complex and then particularly i feel in a lot of christian tropes suffering for for art is something that that comes through quite a bit and i think it's something in a lot of the films that we discuss particularly because john you're you and you like to unpack films with a catholic gaze which yeah. This is Russian Orthodoxy, so it's very different, very different. But we end up unpacking a lot of Christian film, and I have no problem with it because, because as long as we're unpacking movies and talking about spirituality and the how we can unpack our politics into it, which we absolutely will in this one, and um, I'm very excited when we do pivot. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it, I believe that it's a very fascinating, fascinating milieu and many of the directors that one might consider a great director agrees with me. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just taken aback by the film doing so many things so well, you know, because this film not only to not only is like highlighting Andre Rublev's art and and his, and the process of his art which is always beautiful it as it runs parallel with Soviet slash Russian history you get sort of a, a double history lesson of art and world history presented by someone with an immaculate brush and either like in or out of context context it is a beautiful film and i take for granted when we watch new movies when there's a zoom out shot you're like oh that's a drone right you're not but when yeah. you watch a movie from 40 50 years ago you're like wait how did they do that how, how are the, how are we zooming out um because it's not a helicopter is it a crane is it a ladder how are they doing it the magic of filmmaking is really felt in these older movies yeah, and you know even if it is a crane or a helicopter you're also um, limited by the practicality of the fact that those things create some pretty noticeable shadows. Right. So you have to be, you, 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 if it's, you know, at a certain time of day, you can't shoot where you want to shoot. So, oh, okay. In order to get the light right, um, with the proper angle of the sun, we can only, we only have this two hour window to do this really complicated crane shot. And if we mess up, we have to try again tomorrow and an entire day is wasted. So when you watch these these guys and girls and women and men and people in between um, do this shit before drones, you get to really enjoy movie magic. When when you look at the behind the scenes filming of Wes Anderson movies or other movies where you realize that they had almost like like a tiny little train inside a house to get all the tracking we lose sight of this yeah and i'm not and gonna say, sorry oh please. well i i think you know this movie opens with sort of an astonishing like prologue that that speaks to that because it's um it's the sort of russian folktale about that was sort of promulgated in the 19th century about 
a 15th century peasant who tied a bunch of animal skins together and made a hot air balloon yeah out of it and and so if any of you listeners out there are familiar with Star Trek um the propensity that Chekhov has for claiming that a Russian invented everything this is an example of that actual phenomenon well it was actually a Russian who was the first person to achieve man flight and this is sort of a, a myth of of that and this peasant you know he jumps from or launches from this church and he's flying through the air and you're getting these glimpses of him traversing across the Russian countryside you know horses galloping uh, fields of mud and he's exclaiming in joy but there's also this ominous like minor key like string bass just thrumming in the background and you just sort of sense this impending doom and his inability to comprehend that he's going to die and the he crashes into the ground and then it flips to a, or like it cuts to a slow motion horse struggling to get up from its back and that's also another running theme in this movie is the juxtaposition of animal suffering with human suffering so the the bond of violence is his being tied between human and animal so as the bond of absolute freedom with absolute destruction and with freedom becomes the risk of destruction mm-hmm. these are these are very good descriptions john oh. <laughs> thank you no i i really i really do appreciate it i think i'm interested in hearing your thoughts and so i'm going to add one more thought about how you know i really like biopics that don't attempt to cram entire an entire life into a film yeah and don't get me wrong there are ones that do that but there's a movie that came out a couple of years ago i think it's called nico 1987 uh, maybe you can double check while while i talk about it and it's just like about the singer Nico in a particularly bad year of her life as she's just going through some some rough shit because Nico, who you one might know from their work with the Velvet Underground or, you know, these days the even though Jackson Brown wrote that song, Nico made that song, you know, these days, a son of a son of a. But anyways, like and it's it's Nico nineteen eighty eight. So you're okay. I was close enough. There, yeah, yeah. Look, my spirit was in the right place. Exactly. So it it came out a couple uh, like five or six years ago, and it's just about like the end of her life when things aren't that good. But it's just like a slice into it, or you know. My my dear friend and director, uh, Shaka King, him, me, and, and Marcus have talked a lot about how The Motorcycle Diaries is one of the more interesting movies about Che Guevara because mm-hmm. it's just about, you know, uh, a spoiled hipster on his motorcycle that sort of is, is an origin story because there are... You know, Steven Soderbergh, who we spoke about earlier, has made two. I'm not going to say how I feel about the Che movies, because I feel like that's something that we could. That's like an episode that we could do. But. I think the Motorcycle Diaries is a more interesting movie. Yeah, I've I've never seen either version of Che's life put the film, so I I can't comment. Oh, okay, that's fine. I do think that Soderbergh is a fascinating director that he made these two epic biopics of Che Guevara and it's like a blip in his career. Like he just has so many movies. He 
he's one of those people that just sort of has made so much stuff and not a lot of it has a singular voice to me. So he's not as important to me as he is to other people. I, I respect him. I will, I will watch his movies. I, I don't necessarily go out of my way to watch his movies, but I'll watch them. And I like many of them, but he doesn't have that voice for me, for me. Again, I'm not going to hate on Steven Soderbergh because he's done so much for, for, for the movie business and for highlighting other directors and helping other directors. And even though you can read a story where he, where he was kind of, kind of weird to Paul Schrader but aside from that you know yeah and, and I mean it's it's such a contrast to Tarkovsky who you know like it, it's it seemed like for a period of six years of his life he, you know his professional and personal life was dominated by this film um, from trying to get it mounted to, to the the enormous labor of filming it and then the protracted release schedule, you know, you like it it was, it was just a a labor of blood, sweat and tears. Whereas some other filmmakers can just sort of pop out a movie in a year, which kind of boggles my my mind. Right. Like Spielberg was making a movie every 10 months in the Mm nineties. But Let's let's talk about it. Censorship and Andre Rublev. What can you tell me about it? Yeah, I mean in in the film he's tasked with painting the an image of the last judgment and he refuses because you know he feels that there's already so much suffering in the world. Why should I paint this apocalyptic vision of of suffering on a church wall. Um, and that doesn't, and it's not like he's executed for it or anything, but he does, you know, have to go on the road again. And, and it's sort of leads to the dissolution of his like tripartite partnership with his, these other monks. Um, but the real life censorship is never logical. And when the Soviet authorities saw this film, they were confused by it. They thought it was too violent. Um, and they didn't like that it portrayed the Russian people as living in such squalor and neglect. And you would think that the Soviet authorities would sort of champion a film that portrayed czarist Russia in a bad light. Like, look at how terrible it was before the Soviet Union came and saved you all. Um, and here's someone who's a, who we are venerating as a cultural hero being portrayed in a good light, but they did not see it that way. Um, and so, you know, it, it took several cuts and many, many years for this film to be seen and I and I think it it does have a reputation of homework to this day. I think because when you when most um, film goers hear about a, a three hour movie about a medieval Russian painter, it doesn't really excite them. Um, for me, uh, that gets me very excited. But I don't know. What about you, Scott? What do you think about that subject? Well, my, what I believe is that, you know, I would not call Soviet Russia perfect communism or perfect socialism, but it's, it was, and, and I really would not say that there ever really has been, but also I would argue that there's never been a a successful capitalist country either. Uh, and 
there is obviously the statement attributed to Karl Marx that he said basically um, that religion is the opiate of the masses, uh, which is which is more complex than the statement is. And yep. if 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 you read Capital, which is a very dense tome, and I haven't finished it, but I've started it. It goes into it deeper, deeper. But the original Marxist tradition is atheist. Yeah, and this movie is deeply spiritual and deeply Christian. Therefore, I believe that tended to the the censorship in the film, and a lot uh, there there was a lot of censorship of art in Soviet Russia, and while some socialists and communists um, are not oppo- that are okay with censorship. I'm not going to pretend that that's not something that has happened or people have championed, and that is a whole episode unto itself. Should there should there be censorship? My the short answer is no. But and I think in in theory. America does a good job of of what speech should be the fact that there are very few things theoretically in America that are illegal to say I think is a very special benchmark of mm-hmm. the American ideal but while I can't that's all I'm going to say about that so there is a, there is a history of a lot of censorship of art in Soviet Russia, especially anything that alluded to to religion. So that is my that's my inkling of it. I don't think the violence really is an issue. Yeah, and you know I, I do think a lot of Russians were confused by the film um, because uh, the writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich which is just a crushing story about a man trying to survive in a Russian gulag um, he was a notable critic of this movie mm-hmm. he, he did not like it and that was personally hurtful to, to Tarkovsky who adored Solzhenitsyn um, and you know it would not be the first nor the last piece of art or film that went underappreciated in its time and, and gained in reputation. And um, as much as you would like your favorite pieces of art to be lauded as soon as they're released, I think there is something special to pieces of art that take time to fully appreciate. Um, and, and I think that also gives us like knowing that this happens over and over again throughout history, I think that um, behooves us to pause before passing a final judgment on a piece of art we might find revolting or disturbing or boring or difficult to understand. Uh, I think things that revolt us sometimes deserve uh, a second look. Right, because cause things are allowed to be uncomfortable yeah. and things are allowed to give us pause. I think it's okay to be uncomfortable and there are cer- certainly instances and places where we can work on being uncomfortable and f- trying to find comfort. If you're having an anxiety attack or a panic attack, you can work on your comfort. If if you're cold, you can put on something warm. But then there's also the discomfort of, you know, white privilege or other sort of ideas that happen. Some, you know, right now, there's there are a lot of global things happening that are very intense. And to talk about them makes one uncomfortable. And, and to that I say white knuckle it yeah yeah if you know it's it's easy for us in america to be able to just turn off social media or turn off 
the news and put world events or other people's suffering out of our minds. Um, but um, we'll hear. Um, in, in the movie, um, Andre confesses to his mentor, Theophanes the Greek, that he killed someone trying to save this uh, peasant woman. Um, and Theophanes says, uh, through our sins, evil assumes a human form. Encroaching evil means encroaching humanity. And you have to live between divine forgiveness and your own torment. Learn to do good, seek truth, deliver the oppressed, and protect the meek. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And, like, this movie is filled with such profound instances of humanity and empathy and, and like, conversation between people who are just, like, trying to fucking figure it out. Um, and, you know, the film certainly does have its share of spectacular imagery, but for it to sort of take the time to have these, like, deep conversations is something I really appreciate. Right. And in Leon Trotsky's biography of Stalin, which I would say is really only for the completest because, you know, Stalin very likely is the reason why Trotsky died. Stalin was the, you know, why am I running out of words? Um, he, after Lenin, he was the... Oh my, Russian dictator. I was going to say successor to Lenin, yeah. yeah. But yes, uh, a dictator. So, and Trotsky's book about Stalin is very likely a reason why Trotsky was killed. And I think I would be interested in looking at a universe where Trotsky was was the successor versus Lenin be, uh, versus Stalin because I think Trotsky was a more was a smarter person and some of his writings have been very influential to me particularly CLR James's work with him CLR James is a writer who wrote the Black Jacobins uh, which is about Toussaint Louverture it's one of the greatest history books of all time and his writings about leftism really helped me understand my place in all of this and he was he did a lot of work with Trotsky and there there's some work by Trotsky which has been attributed to CLR James but I, I'm not sure if that's ever been um, verified so take that with a grain of salt but in his in his book about Stalin, he says, you know, um, you know, now as we are living during the transition from one system to another, in an epoch of the greatest social crisis, which is always is accompanied by the crisis in morals, the olden has been shaken to its foundation, and the new has secretly begun to emerge. And when the roof has collapsed, the doors and windows have fallen off their hinges. The house is bleak and hard to live in. Today, gusty drafts are blowing across our entire planet. All the traditional principles of morality are increasingly worse off, not only those emanating from Stalin. But a historical explanation is not a justification, right? So, this movie is is a is a historical but historical right because it's apocryphal the, did did the things that happen in the book happen the way that they're presented no it's we already know that it hasn't but it might as well have been in its own way if you know what i'm saying because all of this is believable it's not apocryphal it's not you know ahistorical anachronistic as far as I can tell you know what I'm saying and uh, which leads me to a thought I've had about explaining the existence of God but I I worry that that 
might take us off a larger tangent than we already are. But real, real quick before we get too far from that quote, um, that happens literally in the movie, right? When after the Tartars, which invade. is which is which is why I, yeah, which is why I read it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just this profound moment of snow falling in into the the collapsed roof of the cathedral, and and the a character says, like, oh, it, it, you, you know, it's terrible when snow falls inside of a temple. And it's yeah, it, it just is profoundly sad moment. Yeah, and it's just, and then the epilogue and color is just so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, we the cinematography itself is is enough to to have someone watch this movie. And while I recommend that you watch this movie in one sitting, the fact that it is in parts allows for slow viewing if you need to yeah that that is one thing that makes me sort of like treasure the theatrical experience because it does force us to sit down and absorb a movie from beginning to end and so even though i wasn't like ready to watch killers of the flower moon again i'm like i'm I, I know if I try and watch this again at home, it's I'll do it in four sittings. Um, so I, so I'm I'm replete with three and a half hour movies this week, Scott. Yeah, I mean that's why it's that's why it's really important for me and for others to consider seeing movies when they can in the theater. Yeah, particularly, you know films that are that their goal is to be more than just a story to be art um and and i'm not saying just like artsy films because i gotta tell you the last few marvel movies i watched on my tv and they're really underwhelming Mm. now is it because superhero movies right now are very underwhelming sure it's certainly a possibility um you know i I read an article that 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 came out recently saying that the the reason why the vfx in a lot of these marvel movies has been bad is because of just date due due dates that make no sense yeah yeah it's absolute um, exploitation of the the VFX community who are not unionized, who are trying so, to. Yeah. So if it's a choice between forcing actors and crew to do another day of shooting, and which would require them to pay them more and do overtime pay, or just force it to be corrected in post, Disney is going to correct it in post. Um, and that that sort of strategy leads to. You know, visual effects that are worse than what we had 20 years ago. And also bad storytelling. Right. Because I, you know, again, this is way off topic. But I didn't hate The Flash. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I loathe a lot about it. And it certainly seems that Ezra Miller is not a great person. Or... I will say Ezra Miller has a lot of work to do on themselves. But I didn't hate The Flash. I really didn't. And much of it definitely had to do with Michael Keaton and the sadness of, you know, the DC changing its course, which makes sense because the DC Extended Universe is a very... Catholic film series. I'm waiting for you to, yeah. to take yeah. in what I just said. Yeah, you are you using that in the sort of um, literary intellectual sense. Yes. Okay. So, like the man that. of the man of steel, and a lot of these films are are Catholic films, which are not so. Not everyone loves them, but apparently they they the screen tests of 
Michael Keaton coming back as Batman were so through the roof that he was going to be like the Nick Fury of the DC universe moving forward. And now that the DC extended universe is over and Batgirl was shelved and all of his scenes from Aquaman were taken out, that is not happening. And that makes me really sad. But why... But why does Batman 1989 have better VFX than The Flash? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's something really malfunctioning in the movie industry if Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and The Flash cost $300 million to make and you can still spot all the CGI. Like, that is inexcusable. Um... And and then you know, this this move from the '60s made it in Russia just like is jaw jaw dropping at, at moments. Um, a better looking film than anything in the Marvel oeuvre. Yeah. And I don't dislike the Marvel oeuvre. I I like superhero movies, mm-hmm. and I like action movies, and I like big budget movies. But I think since. VFX has hit the uncanny valley. Not much really has has trumped practical effects. Yeah, like name, you know, in any of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, is there any fight that's more memorable than the fight in They Live? Which is just two dudes in an alley for eight minutes. No, and and yeah. why? Also, the, what, some of the best fight scenes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are on the Daredevil Netflix show, yeah. which are which are very much, in my opinion, obviously taking inspiration from the Raid films. And you know, Indonesian uh, martial arts films are are some of the best practical effects you're going to see the night comes for us is one of my favorite violent movies of the past 10 years and it is violent but i'm never like is this a video game yeah so i think i think now that computer effects have gotten so good we need to scale it back and use it for what it was initially meant to be, which is just to add background and stuff and just get back to making movies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I think movies that have aged the best have, have done that. So like, if you look at the, some of the space battles and like the starship troopers, um, looks great. Whereas the, the CGI bugs do not look great in that movie. No, they do not. Um, look, and, miniatures miniatures look good. Yeah. That's why the Lord of the Rings movie still looks amazing, because they used miniatures. Or mini- miniatures that were big enough for you to walk around in. But to go back, yeah. Andre Rublev is a brilliant film because it tells all these stories together. It is a biopic it is an epic. It is a history. It is a religious film. It is a political film. I mean, I, th- I feel like Andrei Tarkovsky had to sort of n- have an inkling that making a movie that religious in, in, in Soviet Russia, when like even Dr. Zhivago was, was controversial, he must have known what he was doing. I don't know, because I think sometimes artists can get so wrapped up in the mission of their own creation that they can't see beyond it. Um, and it, it seemed like this might have been something that occluded everything else in his life. Or I could be totally wrong. Um, but I do want to read this one quote I found um, from the Iranian director, Abbas Kuristami. Um, Tarkovsky's work separates me completely from physical life and are the most spiritual films I've ever seen. I think movies and art should take us away from daily life 
should take us to another state. And I, I think that um, that's super, that sums up this movie beautifully. I mean, I think coming from Kurostami also says says quite a bit, and um, I I hope to start adding the films of Tarkovsky into the the oeuvre of popcorn eschaton because I think his films are deeply spiritual and sometimes and and sometimes political. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. And uh, yeah, do you have any closing thoughts? No, I'm I'm all set, Scott. Uh, thank you for talking about this great movie with me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, and um, Tarkovsky mustache says hello. <laughs> And don't ever forget about the Tarkovsky turnip. <laughs>